This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So pleased that you can be with us. And for the next 60 minutes, we'll be taking questions that you have submitted. We're not going to take live calls today because we've gotten so far behind on the many, many submitted questions. So we're just going to go with those who email them in today. And the email address, if you have questions that come up during the week, maybe it's a potential challenge in your life or you are facing some uh, issue that you want, you know, a counsel on or some theological challenge, uh, again, you can always email us here directly at TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. And this, of course, can be heard at WAGP.net around the world, 365 days a year we broadcast, and locally, of course, at 88.7 FM. So, Walter, uh, let's see if we can play some catch-up today, and we'll take the questions one at a time, and we'll see how far we get. All right, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Jerry out of Bluffton, South Carolina. He writes, Dr. Brogy, during both of your recent sermons in April and May, You spoke of the New Jerusalem being a city shaped as a cube with the wall having a city having 12 foundations and on them are the 12 names of the apostles of the lamb. Is one of these apostles Judas Iscariot or is it his replacement Matthias? Thanks for taking the time to answer my question. No, it's a fantastic question, Jerry, and it goes back to a statement that Jesus had made. It was a promise he made to the apostles. They said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And he reminded them of the great blessing in the future. And among those blessings, he said, you will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there is that aspect of the promise. And then, of course, in eternity future, God will have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed in the stones and will have the 12 apostles names. So your question is, which apostle? Well, I can promise you it will not be Judas Iscariot because heaven is a place that represents genuine salvation. And sadly, Judas Iscariot never had that. So some would say, well, is it the apostle Paul? No, it's really not. Um, let me read to you from the uh, book of Acts, if you remember He is giving a parenthetical note, Luke is, beginning in Acts 1 and verse uh, 18. Let me back it up just a little bit. It says, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. And then Luke adds parenthetically, now this man acquired a field with the price of of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open into the middle and all of his intestines gushed out and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, 
That field was called Hakidama in Aramaic. That is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. Let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of all the men, of all the men who've accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So what did they do? They put forth two men, forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Of course, uh, you do not see the apostles or anyone in the church drawing lots after this. This is pre-Pentecost. The Spirit of God had not yet been given. God always uses his word, and indeed he's doing that. They recognize, well, Jesus had revealed that it was of utmost importance, A, that they accompanied Jesus from the baptism of John all the way until his ascension into heaven. They walked with him during those times. Now, whether there was more than two there, we don't know. It appears there was only two. And of those two, Matthias fit the bill by divine lot, by divine providence. Uh, Paul wouldn't have fit that bill because he came in, of course, uh, to the faith after Jesus ascended into heaven when he had that Damascus Road experience. So Paul was really on a whole different level. So these guys were apostles like Paul in that they had been personally selected by Christ. They had seen him in his resurrected body and they did the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. And so with that said, um, in addition to fill the 12th seat in which you would uh, be one of the 12 men judging the 12 tribes of Israel and have your name on the stones of the great eternal city, the New Jerusalem, uh, also called the Father's house. It's the place that the Lord is going to take us to someday. It's the place where your loved ones are right now that know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. The 12th stone will be um, with Matthias's name on it. Good question. I appreciate it so much. Let's go on to the next, Walter. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Rosie out of North Ridgeville, Ohio. She writes, Dear Pastor Brogy, if God elected individuals before the foundation of the world to be saved, as Romans eight twenty nine and Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 say, does that mean individuals that are not the elect of God are doomed? Can you please give me some understanding of this? Because... I was taught that every individual is given the choice to heed the calling of God for salvation. Well, that is true. Uh, Everyone is given a choice and how that fleshes itself out in time and space. Therein lies the debate. The hyper Calvinist would say, yes, you freely chose Jesus as your personal savior only because in eternity past he elected you to make that decision. And so that's their rationale. They say it's not in violation of your free will. And let me just say parenthetically, every faithful Christian who takes the Bible at face value believes in the doctrine of election. That's not really what is in view. What's in view here is how does God elect? On what basis does God elect? And so it says he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. 
Predestination is often confused with election. Predestination is that process by which after you are converted, God shapes you into the image of Christ. But right before that statement in Ephesians 1.5 that I just read, it says he chose us. And the word here for choosing is the word from which we get our word election from. He chose us when? Before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before the Lord. So God did choose us. Well, on what basis did God choose us? That becomes the point of rub. And so I say every Christian believes in the doctrine of election, that God chose people before the foundation of the world. The point of debate is not if God chooses us. The point of debate is on what basis does God choose us. So I've just turned to 1 Peter chapter 1. There we read Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. There it is, another form of the word, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And that produces, of course, obedience to Jesus Christ. So we are chosen, and the text says, according to the foreknowledge. Now, again, people like to play mental gymnastics with the word foreknowledge. It's just two words brought together. In this case, it's not the verb usage. It's the noun prognosis. Pro gives us our word pre, means before. Gnosis, we get our word gnostic. It means knowledge. And so it's literally translated foreknowledge here in First Peter chapter 1, verse 2. So God, according to his foreknowledge, chose us. Well, what does it mean to have foreknowledge? Well, when you look at other usages of this word, whether it's a noun or verb form, it just means something that God knew in advance. For instance, I'm flipping over here to Second Peter for just a moment. In Second Peter chapter 3, and in verse, um, well, let me just pick it up in, in verse 14. So you have the flow. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be patient to be found in him, by him in peace, um, spotless and blameless. He's talking about the coming day of the Lord. It, we're at the end of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a thousand plus years long. It's not a 24 hour day, but a prolonged period of time that mimics a biblical day and that a biblical day starts at sundown and it ends sundown the next day. And so the day of the Lord has such kinds of characteristics. I believe we're in the shadows of the day of the Lord, but it won't get dark until the church is raptured. And it gets very dark during the seven year tribulation period called the time of Jacob's trouble. It gets bright at the second coming. And the S-O-N is compared to the S-U-N in scripture. He rules for a thousand years on the earth and what we've prayed will be fulfilled. And then at the end of the thousand years, those who were born through tribulation saints who enter their bodies, enter the um, millennium in their natural bodies, some of their children will not have responded and there'll be a dark side again. And then it will get bright as we go back into eternity future. So since you are to you know, aware of these things, regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, 
which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guide. Knowing this beforehand. In other words, this is prior knowledge that you have. So that's how he's using the verb here. Now it's not the noun, it's prognosco. It means to know something beforehand. Even the Apostle Paul, when uh, he gives his testimony, he gives his testimony on three occasions that are recorded in the book of Acts. And, And interestingly, in Acts chapter 26, he gives his testimony and he's referring to the fact that the Jewish people knew beforehand what he was like. And so, again, letting Scripture define the usage and meaning of this word, prognosco, he chose us according to his foreknowledge, his prior knowledge. So think your way through this. In eternity past, God could look down the tunnels of time, see every single person whose heart is stirred by him. And remember, you don't come to Christ in your own. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the doctrine of total depravity. You have no ability all by yourself to come to the Lord any more than a man in a coffin has the ability to fix his tie. You are as dead, spiritually speaking, as a corpse is physically. So God initiated with you, but he doesn't initiate with a select few. He initiates with the world. When he, the spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world. And world means world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so God stirs a human heart, and people then have a decision to make. And as God looked down the carters of time, he saw whether or not you would respond. And so in eternity past, it says in the Revelation, God wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, sometimes we like to say, well, when you get saved, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Well, maybe a check mark is put next to your name on the day of your conversion. But actually, the scripture is clear that before the foundation of the world, God wrote down your name. That's not because you didn't have a free will. It simply means that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. So God knew who would respond, and on that basis, God elected us. So yes, every man has a free will. God does not want people to perish. He wants people to come to genuine repentance. He desires all men to be saved. That's the heart of God, but not all men will be saved. And so the hyper-Calvinist who even carries it to the point of a limited redemption that Jesus didn't die for all, but just for a select few, uh, they're just wrong. Whosoever will may come. And people who don't come to Christ choose not to come to Christ because of their rebellion. I think of John 12, maybe one final text in reference to this question. Uh, Jesus had performed all kinds of miracles in front of these Jewish men who were following him. And I mean, they were beyond dispute. And these were miracles that the scripture said Messiah himself would actually do. And so he says uh, to them for a little while longer, the light is among you walk while you have the light. He's referring to himself. Who's the light of the world walk while you have the light uh, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. 
And so respond to the revelation you're seeing. These things Jesus spoke and went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs, and the word here is Samion, it means a miracle with a message. And so John emphasizes the use of this particular word for a miracle. There's different words in the Bible for miracle. There's a word like dunamis. We get our word dynamite from it that speaks of the power of a miracle. The word taras, which speaks of the wonder of a miracle. He uses the word samion, which means the message of a miracle. And so John records very carefully uh, seven miracles, five of which are unique to his gospel. And he said, though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah again said, he is blinded. He who, he God has blinded their eyes, has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. And so Isaiah saw this in advance. That's what he says. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And so because they would not believe, the text says they could not believe. There's free will. They were unwilling to come to him. And so that's your free will. And God knew how you would respond. But God knowing that does not change your free will. If God didn't know that in advance, God wouldn't be God. One of his attributes is that he is an all-knowing God. What this caller might want to do is to go online, download the Search the Scriptures app, and click on the book of Romans and listen to Romans 8. Or if you really want to dive deeply, listen to Romans 9, 10, and 11. 9, 10, and 11 deal in great depth with God's choosing of Israel. Because some had believed that God was done with the nation of Israel, men like John Calvin, he thought, well, God's done with the Jews. And he said some hateful, hateful things about the Jewish people that are embarrassing when you're witnessing to a Jewish man or woman. They'll bring up often Martin Luther or John Calvin and some of the hateful, heinous things that they said about the Jewish people. With that said, because they thought the church had replaced Israel, when they came to Romans 9, 10, and 11, they read it through that lens. Now, they were largely influenced through Roman Catholicism. And Roman Catholicism taught that the Roman Catholic Church was the new Israel. They just put a different spin on it. They said, no, it's not the Roman Catholic Church that doesn't even have the gospel It's not the Roman Catholic Church at all. It is indeed the body of Christ. Those who are born again has replaced Israel. And that's not true. God's not done with Israel in Romans 9. He elected Israel out of all the nations of the world. It deals with Israel's election. Chapter 10, he deals with Israel's rejection. Why are they in unbelief? Why did he come to his own and his own rejected him? In Romans 11, with their future restoration. So understand this whole issue of divine election is rooted in a false view of Israel. And interestingly, there's coming a day when God will restore Israel and they will call upon the name of the Lord in faith. 
but right after he describes the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 that is going to unfold for the Jewish nation during the time of Jacob's trouble that chapter 30 of Jeremiah addresses. Then in 31, he describes this new covenant that is going to be actualized in their hearts through that difficult time called the time of Jacob's trouble. And then he reminds the reader, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, the sun, the moon, the stars, If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will cease from being a nation before me forever. If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, they can't. Then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. So Calvin's uh, false view of Israel is what drove his doctrine of election. And it's created a lot of consternation in the day that we live. Good question. Let's go to the next, Walter. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Grant out of Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. He actually has two questions for you, Pastor Carl. Uh, first, could you comment on 1 Corinthians chapter 11's admonition for women to wear head coverings when praying or prophesying? I have read that this was a widespread practice in the church until relatively recent times, and it is still widely practiced today in other areas of the world. Even R.C. Sproul argued that the church had lost its way on this issue by dropping this practice. Has the modern Western church made a mistake? Well, it's a it's a fair question. So let me address this one. Um, you're referencing 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and really verses 3 through 16. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. And so he's underscoring here that there are certain um order that God has in his church. And first he wants to make it clear that Christ is the head of every male and that the male is the head of the woman and, and that uh, the man is her head, so to speak. And God, the father is the head of God, the son. So even within the Trinity headship exists. So he's not by any way depreciating a woman in terms of her value or her equality because any sound biblical theology would affirm that Christ is equal with the father. And yet he is under the father, the scripture says. And so he's describing, well, he says in verse four, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now, in the Middle Ages, interestingly, Jewish men began to cover their heads when praying. In the first century, that never would have happened. You go to Israel today, and you'll see Jewish men with prayer shawls over their head, and sometimes they'll say, well, if Jesus prayed, he would have taken this shawl, and he would have put it over his head. That's not true. Not according to the Apostle Paul. Now, it, sh- it will sell uh, those shawls that they want to sell you. But that practice didn't really start until the Middle Ages. Paul said for a man to cover his head while he's praying or prophesying is really disgracing the role that God has given him. For a woman not to do it 
she's disgracing her head literally and her head metaphorically her head is her husband he's over her and just as Christ submits to the father the woman is to submit to her husband's leadership again it's not an issue of equality Paul has already affirmed it one of the first books he wrote in Galatians 3.28, that men and women are equal in their stature before the Lord. But nonetheless, she plays a different role. So take all the air out of the balloon. Let's just stop and pause for a moment and think about some things that we do not do today because of the culturally bound expression that they might show, and yet the timeless principle that goes with it. Take foot washing, for instance. Jesus said, you're blessed if you do what I just did, that is, wash one another's feet. Well, have you been blessed by washing someone's feet lately? I Probably not. Uh, probably few, if any, listening to me has washed someone's feet today. But that was a common practice in the first century, because when you traveled, say, to someone's home. When you arrived, you got your feet clean. Usually the host, or if he had someone who worked for him, would get down with a basin and wash people's feet. Of course, that was neglected by the disciples there in the upper room. They had prepared their bodies for the Passover. Uh, They were cleansed all over, but on the way to the upper room, their feet got dirty. And yet there in a conversation, Luke tells us about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God when Jesus gets down and washes their feet. Now, there's more than just a lesson on servanthood there. There's also a lesson about practical daily cleansing. That is, we walk through this world, we don't need another bath. He was bathed, doesn't need another bath. Once bathed, always bathed. Once saved, always saved. But as we walk through the world, our feet get dirty. So we don't wash feet anymore because we don't have the same kind of circumstances. For the most part, our roads are paved. For the most part, people don't wear simply open sandals, but shoes. And so, but the principle that's timeless, the timeless principle, very simply, is that we are to be servants one to another. Now, in the culture that we live in more and more today, the head covering does not carry the significance that it carried in the first century. If a woman did not wear a head covering in the first century, she was saying one of two things. Either A, I do not recognize my husband's authority, or B, she was like one who had her head shaved, which is something a prostitute did. They wore their hair very, very short so that a man walking by could say, oh, I know what kind of woman she is. I know what kind of goods she's selling for some of money. And so Paul makes it clear that for a woman not to wear her head covering is basically to shame her husband. Uh, And there are some parts of the world today where it still carries that cultural significance. When we first started going to Eastern Europe in the late 1990s, my first trip there I think was in 1997, When I first went there, I could look out across the congregation and every woman that had a head covering on, and by the way, it's not these little doilies that sometimes people wear today. It was a significant covering uh, that they wore in the first century. And even the ones that they were using in Eastern Europe in the late 90s were somewhat modified from what a woman would have worn in the first century. But um, you could look out across and say, yep, those women that have a head covering They're married. And all the single women 
they had no head covering. So you immediately could tell who was married and who wasn't. Now, when you go to the Ukraine, there's very few women that wear head coverings. There are some, but it is greatly diminished from what it was uh, even in the early 90s. So if I were in a culture where uh, the means to esteeming, among other ways, my husband's headship was to wear a head covering, then I would say you should wear it. You should wear it. But if it doesn't carry that cultural expression, then it's really not necessary. So R.C., you know, I I respect him in some ways. I obviously differed with him in other theological points. He was a hyper-Calvinist, practiced infant baptism and so forth. And um, so, you know, I but he had the gospel and he was uncompromised and all the major non-essential, all the major essential doctrines of the faith. I, I wouldn't agree with him and the conclusion he made on head covering, certainly not in our culture. Uh, but that doesn't change the timeless principle that we would both affirm that the husband is the head of his wife as the father is the head of Christ and as Christ is the head of the man. Great question. Now, now there's a second part to it. Or? Yes, sir. Pastor Carl. So the part two of that question is, does first Corinthians chapter 14 verses 34 and 37 require the total silence of women? Does this mean that churches that allow women to publicly share their testimonies, pray or lead worship are violating a command of Jesus? Well, let me read it. It says the, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but are subject, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. It's improper. Uh, I think the King James says it's shameful. The ESV went with that as well. It's improper. It's uh, not, not correct for a woman to speak in church. So what does he mean by that? Understand, Paul is not so muddle-headed that he just gave an example in 1 Corinthians 11. Remember, these chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They're added almost a millennium after the scripture is completed. He just gave, I just read it from the first half of your question, about how a woman could pray and prophesy in church. So she can obviously speak something. It's not like, oh, Paul, he's, you know, he forgot that already. And now he's saying they can't speak. No, it's a qualified silence. In fact, he he commands women and men alike in Ephesians 5, that when the church is gathered, for instance, we're to sing together. Uh, that That's a command of scripture. You're not to be there with locked on Sunday morning. You should sing. You should do everything that you can. So understand the the church in Ephesus and what it was like and, um, and, and excuse me, the church in Corinth, what it was like. <clears throat> it says here in 1433, right before this, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And so if you read 1 Corinthians 14, what becomes apparent is the Corinthian church was disorderly. They had rampant disorder. In fact, uh, he is already illustrated with the gift of tongues. Uh, they came together and all these people were speaking simultaneously, the gift of tongues. And Paul says, <clears throat> excuse me, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three in each in turn. And one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church 
and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others pass judgment. And so, for instance, you had people who were speaking in tongues and no one who was interpreting. And so Paul says, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church is edified. He said, he'll say in verse 19, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So this was a church that was just known for disorder and confusion. And so while a woman could pray and prophesy in church, the judgment of the prophecy was left to the men. Why? Well, again, that's in keeping with what Paul has written in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 12, that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. Uh, And so uh, to um, a woman to speak in the church, it's a qualified silence. It's qualified by what he's already said in the 11th chapter. She was not to interpret the prophecy. The men were to do that because that moved it from a teaching role. But she could prophesy. A, a parallel of prophesying today would be a woman opening the Bible up and reading scripture. Totally permissible. But for a woman to take that passage and then to expound it and to teach it, that's the role that God has given to men in the church, in the gathering, in the worship service. Now that could apply in other venues in a mixed audience. Men do that. Women are to teach women. That is their primary focus. And they're to teach children as well. As men can teach women, as men can teach children. But women's teaching role is first and foremost with other women. Why? Because he doesn't want women, among other things, to be pastors. Why? Because is he speaks in first Timothy two, they have a higher role and it's raising up pastors by raising up godly children, being there to do what a mother must do if she's going to be effective with her children. Good question. There's a lot more we could spend on it, but I would direct this person to a recent series. I did three messages on first Timothy uh, chapter two. And I started in verse eight and went all the way through verse 15 on the ministries of men and women in the church. Uh, that's going to answer a lot of these questions, I think, for you. Good good question. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Colette out of Bradenton, Florida. She says, I started listening to your sermons thanks to my old friends Chuck and Claire Hannon, who moved from New Jersey to Beaufort, but moved back again to be close with family. Your teachings are a blessing. Finding a sound biblical pastor is very difficult. My question is, is Rick Warren a Freemason? I am supposed to meet with the pastor who promoted his sermon and I walked out of the church. I know that Mr. Warren is a false teacher and his affiliation with P. Drucker, the Pope and the World Economic Forum, etc. I have heard that he is an Illuminati and Freemason, but I am not sure. Thank you. So Peter Drucker was a leader, especially in the 1980s, out of Fuller Seminary, and he was responsible for planting the seeds of a movement that was revived that went back to the 1940s, and today its current expression is the New Apostolic Reformation, which is a very, very dangerous movement. You will see it represented by groups like Bethel Church. Many people know Bethel Music. Uh, Hillsong. Uh, There are people within Hillsong that are part of the NAR. And it's very dangerous because they basically teach that the office of apostle is open. 
And so Drucker is a dangerous, dangerous man who's now dead. I'm not saying he wasn't a Christian, but he really introduced some bad doctrine. Um, with that said, uh, let me just pause and to say that the World Economic Forum is a godless organization started by Klaus Schwab in the 1950s. He continues to lead it. He's in his 80s. These are people who are committed to a one-world government, a one-world economy. More recently, they've associated themselves with the World Health World WHO World Health Organization. They're in favor of a central bank digitalized money. And so they are really planting the seeds and setting the stage for what I think the Antichrist will use when he comes on the scene to carry out in a very real way a one world government. And so, look, Rick Rick Warren, God bless him, you know, the Lord knows whether or not he's really his. I'm not going to say, I, I've never said that he is a unbeliever or a false teacher. Understand there's a difference between a false teacher and someone who teaches falsely. You can teach falsely. Okay, for instance, we just spoke about R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul was a very um, committed Christian man. He was born again. You'll meet him in heaven someday. He did a lot of good for the body of Christ. Now, he also taught infant baptism. He also taught limited redemption, that Christ didn't die for all, but just for a select few. To me, both of those doctrines are false teaching. Um, does that mean he's a false teacher? No. Look, both infant baptism and credo baptism or believer's baptism, that is, there's a creed, a certain doctrine you must believe before you can be baptized, specifically the gospel. So we call that credo or believer's baptism or post-conversion baptism in deference to paleo or infant baptism. So he taught infant baptism. Now, somebody would say, well, that's a secondary issue. Well, it is in the sense that you could believe in infant baptism and still be counted as a Christian. So I would account, I would view R.C. as a, as a believer who loved Christ. Um, with that said, somebody's right, somebody's wrong. And if part of the Great Commission, if a third of the Great Commission is make converts, make disciples, that's how the word disciple is being used there, not do discipleship, though there is an aspect of doing discipleship in the New Testament, but not in that part of the Great Commission, go make disciples. And that's important because people say they're making disciples and they're not doing evangelism. If you're not doing personal evangelism, you're not doing a good job with those whom you are discipling. Make converts. It's now broadened just to all nations. It was initially the limited commission don't go to the way the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, just go to the house of Israel. Now he broadens it to all the nations of the world. Go to all the nations, preach the gospel, uh, make disciples, baptizing them. So notice the order. You make a disciple, then you baptize them, and then you teach them. Teaching them is the process of discipleship. What do you teach them? All that Christ taught and all that he entrusted to us through his apostles whom he commissioned. And so... Again, a third of the Great Commission is believer's baptism. Every example in the New Testament, without exception, is believer's baptism. Believe and then be baptized in Mark's account of the Great Commission, which is given five times. Look, water, why can't I be baptized? 
Well, you can only be baptized if you first believe, Philip told the eunuch. I've made that decision in my heart as you've been preaching. I believed with my heart. And of course, he stopped the chariot and he immersed him. He baptized him. So baptism in the New Testament always follows conversion. With that said, I would hate to meet the Lord after 50, 60 years, however many years of ministry that R.C. had, and for the Lord to say, well, you know, for 60 years, you taught the wrong thing about baptism. Well, I, I wouldn't want to hear that. I'd want to hear a commendation that, no, you were faithful to my word. You took it at face value. You just did what I plainly said. So in that sense, it's not really secondary. There's nothing secondary if God has spoken clearly. And indeed, I believe he has with with baptism. So Rick Warren had the gospel. He did not teach salvation by works. Was he foolish for snuggling up with the Pope? Of course he was. The Pope is a false teacher. The Pope that we have currently denies that Jesus is the only way to God. He signed a document a year ago, last November, that basically said there's many ways to God. That's in total defiance of what the scripture teaches. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm the way to those who are lost. I am the truth to those who've been deceived. I'm the life to those who are still dead in their sin and need to be born again. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So to go and become friends with the Pope is basically to give an endorsement. Now, if he went to the Pope and rebuked the Pope and said, Pope, you know, you're in gross error, that would be one thing, you know, and, and there's a time to do that. And sometimes if I say anything negative about Catholics, people say, well, I'm being hateful and, and I'm actually being, you know, a detriment to winning them to Christ. And the scripture would say just the opposite. Look at the apostle Paul, what he said to the church at Galatia, false teachers had come in among the church and it seemed so subtle, the error that they had embraced so subtle. I mean, they weren't denying that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. They just added one thing, circumcision. That's all, just circumcision. Just be circumcised, and then you can guarantee with your belief in the death, burial, and the resurrection that you'll go to heaven. And Paul says, look, we're Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we, Jewish men who had been circumcised, believed in Jesus, Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. He will say, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And so he gets very clear. He said, if you believe this false teaching that these Judaizers are bringing, you should be accursed. Now, Paul, that doesn't sound very loving. The Greek word is anathema. You should be damned to hell. Can you imagine telling the Pope that he should be accursed, especially in light of the fact that he reaffirmed the Council of Trent, where they have over 100 anathemas given against Bible-believing Christians? Can you imagine telling the the Pope that he would be accursed. If Paul had him face to face, he would say, you are leading a multitude of people, not into salvation, but into damnation. So Rick Warren should have practiced biblical separation. Again, we're not talking about a secondary or tertiary issue. We're talking about something you must believe in order to go to heaven. 
And the Pope denies that. He denies Jesus is the only way. He denies salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He denies that. It's a different message. Thank God for those Roman Catholics who have found the Lord Jesus through various means, their own study of Scripture. So um, whether or not he's a Freemason, that's highly debatable. You read all kinds of things. I would have to ask him. But I will say that he did a great disservice to the church with his book, The Purpose Driven Church, because he taught a new paradigm as to how we should do church on the Lord's Day. If you want to know how to do church, read the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy in the books of Titus. And central to the worship service, even above the time spent in music, is the preaching of the word. That's what the New Testament highlights, that the word of God, sound doctrine is taught. Why? Because that's the tool that the Spirit of God uses to bring about the new birth, and that's the tool that he uses to grow us, to mature us, to protect the church from those who will come in unannounced, who will try to draw away disciples, uh, true disciples, into error. And so if people are not being taught healthy, sound doctrine, they're susceptible to error. And so what Rick Warren did well, you know, it grew churches. I'm thinking of a pastor in church in the, in this town when I first came. And, you know, I was meeting in a school and he was meeting in another school. And our churches were both small. We had about 150 people and he had about 75. And in a short time, he grew to over 400 people. And I spoke to him one day and he said, yeah, yeah, this Rick Warren stuff is great, man. It's a, it's It really works. Well, the guy doesn't have the gospel. He marries homosexual people. He denies that there's a hell. He denies biblical infallibility. But what he did using Rick Warren's method worked. Well, it's not the kind of growth that you want. And that's why when Paul warns pastors, he says, be careful what you're using to build God's church. When we refer to the passage about God testing our works with uh, fire being a gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Contextually, he's talking about what are you building God's church with? Are you using the wisdom of men or are you using the word of God that's called the wisdom of God? If you're using the word of God, you'll build a healthy church that will, when evaluated the judgment seat of Christ, will be gold, silver, and precious stone. If you're using the techniques of men, which is what Rick Warren did, that was false teaching to say that we should Get away from Bible exposition. It's too heavy. Uh, it will alienate these lost people who we want to win. So look, I, I'm, I'm all in favor of winning lost people. We largely grow by conversion as a church, not by shifting people from one church to another. But with that said, uh, you don't compromise what is to happen on the Lord's day. And so the end result is a weakened church. And now all these churches that were once healthy that are now apostatizing and leaving the faith. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Jim out of Hilton Head, South Carolina. He writes, our Bible study group is studying Romans. Last night we were in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Our confusion is how Paul could have felt we as Christians must submit to governing authority, especially at a time when Christians were being brutally murdered by Nero. The government had a war going against Christ followers, yet Paul's instructions were to submit to the ruling authorities because God had established those in authority. Did God establish Nero for the persecution of Christians and Christ followers should not object? 
Well, it's a fair question. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, the governing authority, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for also for conscience sake. Uh, and so that that's important for because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So, yeah, Nero was uh, a hardline hater of Christians. Of course, you know, Nero liked everything to glitter and to sparkle. And so when he rebuilt Rome and he had rebuilt a large portion of it, the part that bothered him the most was the slums where the poor people lived. So what did he do? He ordered them burned one night. And of course, the people revolted. And so realizing he had all these people who were angry with him, he blamed it on the Christians. He said, I, I didn't burn your your housing. These Christians said, you know, these folks who talk about calling fire down out of heaven and all this, they did it. And to emphasize that he didn't do it, though he did, history records it and documents it. He used Christians as an example. He literally dipped them in oil and made them human torches in his garden. So the the height of the Neronian persecutions are still a few years away, but still they are already grossly hammering the people of God. And yet they are still there by the authority of God. Why are they there? Even in the most pagan of cultures, if there's no authority, there's anarchy. And so the authority is to be a minister of God for good and for evil. Look, you don't want to live in a town with no policemen. We're beginning to see this fleshed out. You know, the, 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 um, the police chief of Los Angeles was on the national news yesterday and he's stepping down. He just can't take it anymore. They keep cutting his funds. Uh, they don't have the police that they need. They're down like a thousand police officers. Crime is rampant, and if you can't get support, what are you going to do? What are the police officers doing? A lot of them saying, I don't want to live here anymore. And so they're going to states and to cities where police officers are still respected. Well, look, if that goes far enough down the road, there'll be total anarchy. And it is foolish to think that man is basically good, that he doesn't need to be punished for doing evil. And so, you know, you can go out in California and steal up to $999 worth of goods and uh, you can be released in a matter of hours. So what do they do? They keep stealing. What are these national organizations and companies doing? They're getting out of California. Yeah, we, we can't afford to lose money like we're losing uh, one major department store had $400,000 of goods stolen two weeks ago. You can't function like that as a culture. And so even in the worst of cultures, you need an established authority. 
Now, again, you submit for conscience sake and you recognize too your testimony, honor the king, you honor the position that he's in. You don't necessarily agree with him. Did John the Baptist agree with Herod Antipas when he confronted him to his face and said, hey, look, you know, this relationship that you're in is unhealthy and you're you're engaged in sexual immorality and it's evil. No, he, he confronted Herod accordingly and he wasn't afraid to do it. And so there is a time when the moral issues intersect with the political issues. Of course, we live in a republic and we have freedom to speak up. In some cultures, there's no freedom to speak up against the government, but there are freedoms always, of course, to preach the truth, but we are to preach the truth and we are to submit to the government as much as we are able, as long as they are not asking us to do something that is contrary to the dictates of Holy Scripture. And that's where we're moving. That's where we're moving. And especially if we see something like central bank digital money, if that ends up kicking in, the control factor to the government will be huge. And if you don't support, you know, this particular doctrine or worldview, then, you know, your funds will be frozen. And hey, look, to some degree, they saw that in a very, very small way happen in Canada where you had the truck drivers strike and you had some people, they just wanted to help folks out and they gave them some money. And when the government found out they gave them money to help the truck drivers, they froze their bank accounts. Can you believe it? It was just beyond belief. That's where we're going. So, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to submit to that kind of thing. And and look, there were Christians when Hitler was in power um, that refused to submit. Bonhoeffer refused to submit. Hitler sent his lynchman into the churches and said, here's what Martin Martin Luther said about the Jews. Um, And so you should follow Martin Luther. And Bonhoeffer said, no, I'm not following Luther or anyone else. I'm following scripture. And he went to prison, ultimately to his death. Uh, There he had to respectfully disobey the government. Good question. By the way, I would suggest this person, that's the short answer. I have an hour long answer. If you go to the book of Romans, I preached a message about five years ago. I've preached the whole book of Romans, but I preached a message, God, guns, and government. And you can find it in, uh, under the Search the Scriptures app. Type in Romans 13, and I'll go through a lot more Scripture with you. All right. Well, our time is slipping away, but we are so glad that you could be with us today for the Bible line. And if uh, you are listening and you live within a 50-mile radius of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, we'd love to invite you. And if you have questions that we didn't answer, you can email them in at tbl for the Bible line at net. And when your question is answered, we will, by God's grace, send you a video um, clip so that you can listen to the answer. God bless you as you walk with Christ.